What's going on, New Vintage? Have a seat. Hey. We didn't even give you any coffee this morning. Oh, man. Pastors across America, look at me. We've been getting it wrong all these years. The key is no coffee. And then uh, the church comes alive, man. Amen. Praise God. What a wonderful time of worship. Uh, I just want to say uh, to the band, way to bring the A-game in the church, man. Yeah. Holy cow. Daylight savings what? Ain't nobody. The early service people setting the tone. I love it. I love it. We're bringing uh, Acts chapter 6 and 7 this morning. If you have your Bible with you, uh, get it ready. Get it warm. Uh, and we will be off and running this morning. I got an announcement I want to make this morning. That's a good one. Uh, those are always better than bad ones. Um, we, uh, God is just continuing to bless our church in so many amazing ways. And one of those ways is he continues to draw people toward um, just what God's doing through this church. And so we, this past week, had a great uh, thing happen to us. We've been in uh, talks with uh, the Global Leadership Summit, which is the largest event, uh, Christian leadership event, leadership event period of any kind in the world. Uh, they, they're about 420,000 people participate in this on those two days all around the world, 127 countries. Uh, and so they don't, they've only got about 600 of these sites uh, around the world, all, all these different places. And uh, because of God's blessing, we're going to be hosting that at the Ritz Theater in August. Yeah. Amen. So for you, because you're an NBCer, uh, don't pass that around, okay? This is an NBC only rate, and we can't go lower than that. That's part of the agreement we've got with them. But that'll cost $229 for most people, uh, and you guys can participate in it for $99. Bucks. As we get a little bit closer, uh, I'll tell you just uh, on the Christian side of things, the, the talent that they've got is incredible. Craig Rochelle, T.D. Jakes, uh, Sadie Robertson, Lisa Turkhurst, Albert Tate, Michael Todd. On the, and they have business leaders that also do it because it's a leadership conference, and they try to get people from business as well as um, within the life of the church. you got Patrick uh, Lencioni, Marcus Buckingham, Paula Ferris from ABC News, Kaká, I think his name is, the soccer player, uh, Brazilian, uh, the FIFA World Player of the Year, Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School, Beth Comstock from Nike, Nona Jones from Facebook, and the list goes on and on and on. Okay, so what we're hoping is that August 6th and 7th, that's a Thursday and Friday, so keep this in mind, right? So we have a little thing that goes on outside on Friday nights here in Escondido called Cruising Grand. So this is going to be quite the wild weekend, uh, and it's going to be very, very close to when we would probably try to do our big, big, big grand opening for everybody. So I want you to just kind of take that window of time uh, and, and be very careful about your August, okay? Because August is going to have some really cool stuff in there. Um, and obviously, we're, our days are counting down until the Ritz officially opens itself. Uh, that'll open much sooner. But, but the whole big like, hey, because you don't want to do it in the summer when everybody's gone. You want to do it when people are around and you can get a big push off of it. Uh, so block this time out. If you can participate, that'd be awesome. If you want to volunteer, that's, a, that's another way you can get in. Uh, and we'll be asking for those as, as the time gets near. But I just want to let you know God continues to bless our church. And so keep us in your prayers. And, uh, and off we go. Those of you who have the YouVersion Bible app have a brand new uh, creepy thing that I added in there today, which is a very large picture of a bug that we'll get to later. Uh, you won't see it on the screen. I was a little afraid, actually, of those of you who are uh, arachnophobic or something, uh, that it might really startle you. Uh, and I'll tell you about the thesaurus. That's kind of how a two-year-old would say thesaurus, but it's thesaurus. Uh, and that is going to be the name that I want you to think of yourself as when you leave here today, a swamp wasp, basically. 
is what it is. I'll get there in a moment. Acts 6 and 7 are basically an obituary for Stephen. Uh, the obituaries are that part of the newspaper that if you're relatively young, you don't care anything about. Uh, that is the place where people say usually very good things about people that have gone on to their reward or lack thereof, but they've gone on nonetheless. So they, you get the obituary and it'll say, hey, here lies Tim Spivey. Uh, you know, he survived by so-and-so. He was born here. Here's his kids. Uh, here's his grandkids. Uh, he was a nice guy blah, 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 blah. And they go through that, right? But when you're young, you, death is kind of a foreign concept to you anyway a lot of times. See, so it's not like you, you don't pass over the sports page to read the obituaries. When you get to be about 60, uh, you're looking for your friends, right? You're, whatever happened to Bob? So you go find it in there. This is a, I've never seen an obituary that really tells the harsh truth about people. Now, I've done, I don't know, hundreds of funerals over the years. Uh, and I've never been asked to say unkind words about anyone. We always just say that everybody was great. Everybody was perfect. Well, the Bible's not that way. The Bible likes to tell the truth about people. So when it talks about the death of someone or if it reviews the life, say, of a king, if they were wicked, the Bible will say they were wicked. If they were foolish, they'll say they were foolish. If they were not particularly bright, the Bible will point that out. If they are ugly, the Bible will say they were ugly. If the Bible, if they were good looking, they'll say, wow, they were really good looking. Okay? So the Bible tells us the truth about people. The Bible tells us the truth about people. So what you read today is not what you would call hagiography, this kind of uh, romantic history of the first Christian martyr. His name's Stephen. So you're going to read a lot of glowing reviews about Stephen in his obituaries today. You just need to know that it's the real deal. Stephen was, in fact, a great man of God. Stephen means a crown or a garland, if you will. The Greek word was used for the reward given to a civic leader or to the crown of glory received by the victor in the Olympic Games, the Stephen. What a perfect name for the one who stood tall on his final day and was given the first martyr's crown in the history of the church. When Acts, 7, uh, Acts 6 opens, rather, you have a, a problem. The church is starting to mushroom, and with that comes, it's not unlike when New Vintage was started, uh, you have needs that people have when they show up, and you don't have enough, you got too many patients, not enough doctors, so to speak. And that mushrooming of the church in the early days has become a real tricky situation because you have a lot of widows, particularly in that time, Keep in mind, life expectancy was not even half of what it is now. So people were dying on a regular basis, particularly men. And so you had a ton of widows. Well, there comes a point where uh, the Greek Christians and the Jewish Christians um, are experiencing their first little bit of friction. And the idea is that the Greeks feel like their widows are not being taken care of the same level, if you will, that the Jewish widows are being taken care of. They feel neglected. So the apostles say, okay, well, why don't you guys, let's come together and we'll appoint seven people to go around and make sure that those widows are taken care of. We don't want to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer to wait on tables, is how they put it. And so that's what they do. They go find seven men that are full of faith and wisdom, full of the spirit and wisdom. And one of those is a guy by the name of Stephen. They make those guys deacons. 
And off they go, and their primary job is to serve and care for the, the down and out and the widows among them. So in Acts 6, verses 8 to 12, we get our first description of Stephen. It says, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Now, notice that little combo. Uh, usually when somebody's referred to as full of the Spirit or something like that, that means they're very bold, zealous, and they're probably getting ready to say something pretty harsh. Uh, that's, a, that's a tip of the cap to the bold in Scripture. But Stephen is referred to as a man full of God's grace and power. He performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called. Now, you need to know these are his own people. All right? Uh, they, they started to debate with him. Well, actually, his people are the ones that turn him over. Now, also, I want you, those of you who are familiar with the story of Jesus... I want you to think about all the echoes of the betrayal of Jesus and everything as this story develops. Verse 9. One day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen spoke. Listen to that. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Verse 11, So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen, and they brought him before the high council. Okay, we're going to pause there for just this moment. Persuading others takes godly wisdom and a godly spirit. It says they couldn't stand against him, because whatever was going on in here, inside of Stephen... And his wisdom with which he spoke, it's the spirit in which he speaks, and it's the wisdom with which he speaks. That doesn't mean that people aren't going to lie about you, as Stephen learns. So they make up stuff about Stephen. And as they do, and as they're accusing him, as he's standing there in in, uh, 6.15, his face starts glowing like that of an angel, it says in the text. Now this is the same high court, mind you, that had just crucified Jesus before. Same high priest, same high council. So this is not like he's in a different jurisdiction or, or whatever. This is a group that the early church is very, very familiar with. Same high priest, same council, same high court. And they ask, is this true? Stephen then preaches him a very lengthy sermon, walking him through, it resembles Peter's Pentecost sermon, where he walks them through Israelite history piece by piece, but the emphasis in Stephen's sermon this time is shooting the messenger. People gave you the info, people tried to get through to you, you would not listen, and so instead you shot the messenger, so to speak. So Moses comes, he tries to get through to you guys, and you won't listen to him. Uh, God gives him the Ten Commandments, tries to guide you, You guys won't listen, and instead you build a golden calf. And then he keeps going through it, through it, through it, and then he says the climax of that, of course, is Jesus himself who says, who comes to earth as the Messiah, who preaches truth, and guess what you did? You crucified him. Now in verse uh, Acts 7, verse 51, flip over a page or so in your Bible, here's how he crescendos his sermon. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. 
They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. Now remember, these are the guys that actually did the deed. These are the ones that sentenced Jesus or took him to Pilate, right? These are, these are their hands are definitely, you know, they're the ones that said, hey, his blood be on us. So here's Stephen. Even though you received, you deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. Some of your translations will say they ground their teeth. If I ever see you grinding your teeth, or I hear it, because you're mad at me, I know we've reached a new level, okay? Uh, if somebody's shaking their fists or grinding teeth, that's when you know you've gone done it from the pulpit, all right? Um, but it says, but Stephen, so they're all mad. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, there it is, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now, let me pause here real quick before we get, a lot of people are, why is he standing? Usually he's sitting at the right hand of God. And there are a lot of people that think this is Jesus being Stephen's kind of advocate on the side. I don't know. But he is standing. That's kind of interesting. Instead of sitting like he usually is. And so Stephen, not knowing any better, basically, says this. Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. He becomes an interesting guy later. And they, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Those of you who remember the crucifixion of Jesus. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. It almost sounds like, uh, forgive them, they don't know what they do, right? So you have all these parallels all the way through the story. And with that, he died. And he becomes the first martyr in the history of the church. Now, if you're not familiar with stoning to death, um, let me give you a brief introduction. This was not something that was very quick. It was not particularly easy. This particular stoning to death, as you may remember, there, there's a process for how you kill somebody if you want to try them the way that this happens, right? Jesus ends up having to go to Pilate. Well, they drag him outside the city, and they just take care of business. They don't wait for a trial. There's none of that. And they, you'll notice things like taking off their coats. Uh, you ever try to play catch with somebody in a winter coat? Doesn't feel very comfortable, right? Um, it's like when somebody says, hey, let's go out, let's take it outside. They go outside and they take their jacket off, okay? And because of throwing heavy objects, you can work up a bit of a sweat. And so you take your coat off. And they take them, and Saul's standing there, and they give them his jacket. Frederick Beekner uh, describes it this way. He says, stoning somebody to death, even somebody as young and healthy as Stephen, is not easy. You don't get the job done with the first few rocks and broken bottles, and even after you get the man down, it is a long, hot business. To prepare themselves for the workout, they stripped to the waist and got somebody to keep an eye on their things till they were through. The man they got was a fire-breathing young arch-conservative Jew named Saul, who was there because he thoroughly approved of what they're doing. It was brutal, it was difficult, it was shameful, and that was not something that, uh, you know, we, 
uh, we do today. It would clearly be viewed as cruel and unusual and a whole bunch of other things in the day and time in which we live. Uh, so I want us to take a look at Stephen. Stephen is a, um, a person who is spoken of with greater breadth than anybody other than Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. He's given a ton of real estate in Acts, uh, two, basically two full chapters. And there's a reason why. And I want to give you the emphasis of Acts is his character. It's actually not just the sermon, which is very lengthy. But from the moment he's identified as a deacon, he's picked as one of the seven, he's singled out in that list as being somebody full of, of faith, wisdom, full of the Spirit, wisdom, full of the Spirit, and wisdom, full of the Spirit, and wisdom, full of God's grace, and wisdom. When it says he's full of grace, which you should know, uh, there's some, uh, linguistically, there's a little bit of stuff in there that leads people to think what it really means is, is winsome. He, he, uh, some scholars call him the winsome radical. He's the guy that is fully dedicated to God in every way, but he wins people over by being gracious in how he does it. Now, his sermon may not seem particularly gracious, but what does he do before he gives his big fiery sermon? He's waiting on widows, right? He's out serving widows and, and the less fortunate. He's known as a man of great uh, spirit and great grace and great wisdom in the life of the early church. So let me start here on the application front, okay? We may not be perfect, but we can be more. Stephen is referred to, again, as the, the winsome radical by, by some scholars. We often think you're radical or you're winsome, but you can't be the winsome radical. Those don't go together. So you can be a bold prophet, but that means you're probably going to be viewed as a jerk by most people. Uh, you can be compassionate, but that probably means, you know, you're great at helping out with the service projects and all the helping the widows and all that stuff. But you're probably not going to get up and say anything particularly bold. You're probably not going to, you know, you, you'll be Mother Teresa or you'll be Martin Luther King, but you're not going to be Martin Luther Teresa. Okay, that, that's kind of the idea. So, so Stephen is this kind of wonderful intersection of, of people where the Holy Spirit shows you this beautiful, uh, how broad and how beautiful his activity in the life of a fully devoted follower of Jesus is. You know, we often use the phrase, hey, we want to have it all, meaning we want to possess the earthly things that most people want. Money, friends, good family, beautiful home, or whatever it is. You, you really can't have it all without being somebody virtuous. You can have stuff, but you can't have it all. In the Bible, kind of flips the paradigm saying it doesn't matter nearly as much if you have it all. Seek the kingdom first and all these things will be added to you as well. You can be more. Stephen's character is whole. He's not just a loud prophetic voice. He's full of grace. He isn't just bold. He's gracious. He doesn't just do great things. He knows the word of God. You know, he's not just, we often, I think, because we, we want to help people find their spot in the life of the body, we'll say, all right, let's help, help you find your gift, help find where you're passionate, and then we kind of slot people there, but we never really encourage them to keep going, keep going, keep going, that you can be a remarkable servant, very much be the hands and feet of Jesus and still be a great student of the Word of God. Or, you know, they say, oh, you're a great teacher, you should be teaching, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but we don't encourage them, to, you know, man, get your hands dirty, pick up the basin and the towel in a very tangible tangible way and keep growing in all these aspects of your personality great you've got the gift of boldness do you have the gift of gentleness too i wonder you know uh stephen the link the language here is very distinct there are very few people that are spoken of 
uh, other than Jesus, as full of, like, say, grace and truth. Okay, grace and wisdom. Full of the Spirit and wisdom. Full of the Spirit and grace. Full of wisdom and grace. Okay, these, these dyads are not usually, usually it's full of the Spirit. Or he was very gracious. But when you see that, that beautiful combo, it makes me want to be a better person. We often absolve ourselves of the quest of being more than we are by emphasizing things like, oh, you know what, you can't do anything that will make God love you more. God loves you just the way you are. God accepts us as we are. And all that's true. That's true. But it's also true that God created us to be more than what we are and has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, as the Bible says. So we try to find sometimes uh, the one, two, or three things that somebody's good at but Stephen reminds me, I need to keep growing. Just because I might have a unique calling to the word in leadership doesn't mean I shouldn't pursue the growth that comes from exploring other areas and trying to say, God, make me a gentler person. Make me a better husband. Make me a better father. Make me a better this. Make me a better that. All right. Number two. Life only has one compartment. I've been on airplanes this week, and in those airplanes... The reason, if you ever want to know why people are fighting to get on an airplane, and I'm, I'm generally a Southwest flyer, yeah. which is a, a godsend, which means that basically you kind of line up in your order and you go on in that order and you have your pick of seats. Yep. All right, but if you ever have noticed when they announce they're going to board a flight, yep. uh, you, you might have, <laughs> you'd think that people, they just said free money. Yeah. I mean, everybody just <laughs> right to the door, right? Yeah. Why? Because they want the overhead storage compartment. Exactly. They want their luggage up there. Yeah. Uh, there was a woman that tried to get on with four bags yesterday on my flight. Oh, no. uh, there was another lady that tried to bring on an entire suitcase of food through security. She got, she got stuck, and she was trying to check it. If it was a full-size suitcase. I don't know what she thought she was going to do. Full-size suitcase full of food, which you're not supposed to take through the, that check-in zone. So she got busted and through a big hiss and all that stuff, right? But people are very persnickety. They want things in the compartments. Uh, I'm a long-legged guy, which is, means I'm the guy responsible for getting everybody else's bags off of the compartments. Uh, and so my take is the least you can do is let me put my bag up there if you're going to ask me to put everything else down there, right? But we want our stuff in its place, okay? We, we do that with life, right? It's here's my job, I got my professional life, and I have my family life, and then I have my recreation life, and I have my spiritual life. Okay. Um, the book of Acts reminds us there's really just one compartment. The compartment is uh, life in Christ. Everything's in there. there. There is no separation. There's no, oh, hey, here's my spiritual life, here's my... Uh, my professional life. I got my job, and then I got my church, and then I got my home, and then I got this, and then I got that. No, it's all there. Stephen has another job. This is not, he's not professional prophet. Okay, he's out, he's serving widows, he's out there uh, helping people. There isn't a moment or a space or a time or a location where Jesus is not Lord. Okay, let me say that again. There is never a moment, a space, a time, or a location where Jesus is not Lord. Stephen is not a clergyman. He had another vocation, and he served as a deacon. He's not a professional preacher, as far as we know. He's just somebody whose entire life is about one thing. 
all Jesus, all the time. So much so that his face glows. I want to glow, right? People pay good money to get that glow, right? He's got that glow because the spirit is so moving in him. It's just moving in him. And so Stephen is just, he's all business for Jesus all the time. It doesn't mean he's intense and mean. He's spoken of as full of grace. Winsome radical, as he's called by some. So this intersection of life is something that's always been the case for, for Christians. I want to introduce you to a bug. It's called the Phosaurus. Now, I should have a really great picture. I thought I did, actually, so you can blame me. But in the Version Bible app, it basically looks like an enormous wasp. Okay? Those of you who have issues, yeah, Nora's wincing at it, my nine-year-old over here. It's a big, ugly bug. It was a species of sand wasp that was used in reference to clergymen during the Roman persecution of the church, much, much like we might refer to somebody as a roach or a cockroach. So if somebody called you a thesaurus, it was not a compliment. So a thesaurus, uh, they were called that because Christianity was an outlaw religion, and so pastors in the early church were often forced to take inconspicuous day jobs, and many of them became grave diggers. So they would come in, dig graves. You know, some of you may be familiar with the catacombs in Rome, down below. Those were all dug, most, for the most part, by Christians. Couldn't worship on top. And couldn't be buried in the same spot as everybody else. And so they were called, basically, the, the Phosaurus, like the wasp digs in the mud. And so they would go down there. And these grave diggers, by day, they would suffer the scorn of the public while working back-breaking work labor for very low pay. At night, they would use the newly excavated grave sites as houses for worship, smuggling in their brothers and sisters for church. In the catacombs, after it ended, the Fasorians, if you want to call them that, would stay up and they would pray. And they would decorate the tombs with symbols and scriptures and prayers and pleas, and they would sleep in the presence of sacralized death, dreaming of God's plans to heal the world. They practiced the undifferentiated wholeness between their art, their work, and their faith. It was all of a piece. Because I'm a pastor, I need to earn a living, I'm going to dig graves, and when I'm digging my gra- the graves and I'm digging in this mess, I don't know, you can watch a movie too if you want, um, <laughs> Uh, that, uh, you know, as they're digging there in the, in the, in the catacombs, I'm going to sacralize it. I'm going to take my vocation and I'm going to offer it to God, whatever it is. So if I'm a grave digger, hey, you know what, I bet, I bet my brothers and sisters could use this for worship. Hey, you know what, um, I bet after, and after everybody's gone, what else can I do to be a blessing to my sisters and brothers? Well, let's spend some time in prayer. Hey, let's take some of these people that are going to be forgotten in death and put scriptures around their tombs. Let's put, you know, and so the Phosaurus, in some ways, is this little emblem of early Christianity. From them, the Phosaurians, if you will, we learn that our vocation and our calling and our identity are just mixed. We don't have prayer lives and spiritual lives. That's not how it works. We're spiritual people. Every thought and word and hope that we, we utter is saturated by the Spirit of Christ. Okay? Stephen is a great example of that. He's 
deacon, he's serving the widows, he's preaching sermons, he's a great student of the word. He walks them right through the entire history of Israel. And so there's one compartment. If you're going to fight for anything, fight to break down the, the walls of the compartments, okay, to where your whole life is about one thing. And that's Jesus. That's about Jesus Christ. So that's what makes Stephen, Stephen. Lastly, and the least popular point I'm going to make today is this one, that knowing Christ means knowing suffering. I know that we've been through four or five weeks about persecution now. And the reason we have is because that's what the Bible has for us. If it seems like there's an awful lot of persecution, it's because there was an awful lot of persecution in the early church. Uh, It starts in Acts 3, and virtually every step of the way, they meet opposition. Largely at this point, it's from people who should know better. Now what happens is, people think that suffering, now I want to differentiate types of suffering here, okay? There's the suffering born of our own stupidity, okay? There is suffering that is more accidental or or, uh, that happens, so you might call it random, okay? You suffer an earthquake or your house burns down, something like that, okay? What I'm talking about here is suffering for the sake of Jesus. Because you're living out faith, you suffer, okay? That knowing suffering and what it means to suffer for Jesus is a part of knowing Jesus. Apostle Paul would, would write, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. Why? And be conformed to his death. I like the first one. Power of his rising. Who prays, I want to share in your sufferings? That's weird. We pray, keep everybody safe. You know, uh, and, and what, where I'm going with this is we often think that the things, we're afraid of the things that, that really won't do us much harm in reality. And we give a free pass to things that really could harm us. I just got back from spring training in Arizona this week. And uh, one of the reasons I went out there was to watch baseball. The other one was to visit a good friend of mine who's got a, a uh, often terminal lung disease. And uh, so he has a hard time breathing. He's a pastor of a large church there. And uh, you, one thing that you need if you're a pastor is lungs, okay? <laughs> uh, and he has fought a good battle two years. He's on the transplant list for new lungs. Uh, and just a, a dear, dear friend of mine. So we go to a baseball game. So he's, he's not super fast of foot. So we kind of make our way down, and we're sitting uh, behind home and watching the game. So as soon as I sit down, there's a lady on my left. And she's got a, a beer in the cup holder on my left. So I sit down. She looks at me <laughs> with a very condescending, judgy look. And then she picks up her beer and moves it <laughs> over. <laughs> and then I hear her turn to the man next to her and say something about the coronavirus. And I'm like... <laughs> I was like... Look, man, I know I don't look that good, but come on. I I look like I'm terribly afflicted with the coronavirus. She puts it over there. The funny part was, as the game went on, we realized these people were actually from Escondido. They were were from Escondido, yeah. Um, But, so we're sitting there, and I can watch her. She will glance over at me from time to time. She'll... 
you know, and I'm, a, I'm not a, I was very, I was ta- trying to talk to my buddy. I wasn't really, you know, you do your thing, we're going to do our thing, was kind of what I was after there. But I couldn't, it bothered me. And so one of the funniest things about this was one of Chad's problems uh, is he goes through coughing fits from time to time. So we're, so we're sitting there, we're sitting there, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, third inning or so, he just goes on one, man. I mean, he just, <laughs> all right, everywhere, and he can't, you know, he can't stop, right? Now, think about this. What I want to say at the moment is, it's okay, everybody. He does not have the coronavirus. He's just dying of a lung disease, <laughs> right? Um, and it's okay, you know, but, but that, and they probably would have gone, whew, I'm so <laughs> glad, right? Okay, but think about this. In his condition, anything they have could be fatal to him. Oh, yes, anything. Right. What he has can't harm them at all. That's right. But they think it can, right? right? So let me just throw that out there to you and say, suggest that there might be an analogy there between suffering and thinking, oh, no. Uh, if I do that, it's going to cause this and this and this and this and this. And we stay afraid of things that really can't hurt us. If we're Christians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? So we spend our time worrying about all of these things, and we miss things that actually impact our eternal souls, like that really impact the lives of people. And we find ourselves being not perhaps afraid enough or desirous enough of becoming the kind of person we see here in Stephen. We spend our time in our faith even trying to find ways to avoid pain. So we, everything we do, from the way we attend church, the way we serve in church, the way we, we give to church, the way we do whatever, we give until it hurts, and then we stop. And what people who are here, I guarantee you, that, that laid on the line, those people that were here very early this morning, when the band was here, I mean, real early. Look at, look at what they just did this morning. I mean, they led us in worship in a powerful way. And I'm sitting here and I'm going, yes, does it hurt? Yeah. But you know what? There, that's where you find Jesus. That's where I find Christ. That's where I, I really experience the passion and love of Christ. Do I experience Jesus most on the dock of the bay? On vacation? Or do I experience Jesus when I'm holding the hand of somebody who just lost their spouse and, and enduring the pain that goes with sitting there? Where am I closer to Christ? Now, I know there are some people who are going to go, well, ontologically, technically, if God's over everything, then you're close to him. Well, the Bible doesn't really teach that. It does teach that God's everywhere, but there are clearly, there's, there are people who are full of the Spirit and there are people who quench the Spirit. There are, there's a greatest command and a not greatest command. There's, not everything is flat in the Bible. And what I want to suggest to us is that what kills us is being afraid of pain. Yep, that's true. Suffering. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I've told you this before, and I, I don't want this point to, to miss us, because I won't be able to say it once we're in there. Okay. The reason very few churches would ever do what we're doing right now, because it's freaking hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I don't mean you just lose sleep. I mean you lose friends. It means you... You, you, you're setting up, tearing down when you had a nice cushy building. It means you have all these different things. It's hard. 
And that's why most people go, eh, thanks but no thanks, because it hurts. Why isn't everybody in this room shredded physically? Because it freaking hurts to work out like that. Deny yourself certain things. Spiritually, it's no different. But one of the great myths is that you can be very, very close to Christ and not know suffering. In what Bible did you get that out of? Like, like the Bible, it just says it over and over and over and over again. If you are a disciple, no servant is greater than their master. Uh, so you need to be ready. You need to be ready. And when you do, don't renounce your faith. Don't go, where is God when it hurts? And da 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 He's right there. And in fact, he's a lot closer to you. You're closer to him. So instead of doing it, let me say, I'm going to embrace it as an opportunity for me to get closer to my Lord and Savior. I mean, do you remember? And, and, and it does get better to where your pain tolerance goes up. Do you remember when you, like, skinned your knee as a kid? And, and you thought your leg was going to fall off because, you know, it was the greatest trauma in the history of the universe. You know, uh, you get a little cold and you, you think that, you know, you're dying of, of some plague or whatever. And it's just a cold. You get it. And then as you get older, you realize, I mean, the kind of pain, I mean, you, you realize, hey, I can give childbirth. I can do childbirth. Hey, I can, you know, do backbreaking labor. Hey, I can do this and that and the other. In the realm of the spirit, you can get stronger. Your pain tolerance can grow. And the, gr and the more you grow in that way, the closer you're going to get to Jesus. Amen. Because it's usually there. You find him at the cross and the empty tomb. Not usually at the beach. I know we can be mindful of him there. But what I'm saying is I'm talking about the deep, deep, deep stuff. The stuff where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, my father is with me. And I'm with him. Peter, or uh, Stephen, looks up and sees the glory of God when he's in the pit being stoned to death. Right? See how close he is. And what I've just decided is that I'm going to try the best I can to not flee all forms of suffering. I don't think you have to go running and sprint into him like, like some sort of weird masochistic spiritual like just the more pain the better it's not that it's saying i recognize that when i suffer for the sake of jesus whatever it is whether it's just doing something stretching a little bit more uh giving a little bit more serving a little bit more and when i feel that ah, i want to stay in bed ah, i want to you know whatever that is that's a sacrifice that's the biblical term for it in worship and god honors sacrifice and finds it beautiful so may we be able to say, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising. I want to share in his sufferings, conform to his death. God will not just make us tougher. He will help us see his glory in pain. And then lastly, you're going to see something great. This is how it ends. If it spills over, as it spills over into Acts chapter 8, I want to read this to you. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church, and he went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. 
couple of things there to note, and then the sermon is yours. <laughs> that guy is Saul, the murderer, right? He'll become the greatest missionary this world has ever seen. You get to do his conversion next week. That's a fun text to preach. Amen. I can't wait. Okay, Saul becomes the greatest missionary ever. So if you just stop here, right? I can't believe that God's letting Saul do his thing. Okay. Don't read Acts 8 and not read Acts 9. That's a point about just the way that we read history and what happens, okay? Number two, you remember in Acts 1 what was said. You will be my witnesses through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, they have not yet left Jerusalem. And so right now at this moment, what they think they're doing, limiting Christianity by persecuting the church and killing Stephen, that'll teach them. What it does is it freaks everybody out and they scatter to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That becomes the instrument by which evangelism for Christ goes on throughout the world. They think, it's almost like, hmm, I know, we'll kill Jesus. That'll put an end to this. And then he gets up again. Hey, we'll persecute the church. That'll put it into it. And all they do is spread. Hey, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. You cannot stop the church. Jesus already said that, right? right? The gates of hell won't prevail against it. And that's what we're a part of. So don't read Acts 8 and stop there. It's like stopping after six trips around the walls of Jericho. Yep, right? Finish the story. And we're part of the ending, sisters and brothers. Yep. So... This morning, we're going to take the cup and the bread. Go ahead, those of you who are going to be passing it. When you do, my fellow Fasorians, um, let's remember the legacy uh, that we've got. Let's remember how God has used those who've suffered over time. May we embrace it whenever God calls us to it. Would you pray with me, please?